Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close. Glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available there. And now, let's get into today's podcast. My guest today on Conversations with Close, uh, an old pal, an old dear friend who I'm really happy to be talking to. He is an author of great books, um, including co-author of The Magic of Johnny Thompson. He has a new book out called The Conjurer's Conundrum, and we'll be talking about that a little later on. Uh, We share many interests and have done many things in an overlapping kind of way. Uh, He was a book reviewer for Genie Magazine at the same time I was doing reviews for Magic Magazine, and maybe we'll tell some stories about that. We have a few. And uh, fellow uh, Memorized Deck devotee, uh, Jamie uh, hosted a a card clinic specifically devoted to Memorized Deck in Las Vegas some years back, and it was just a delight to be part of that. So anyway, my friend Jamie Ian Swiss. Hi, Jamie. Thank you for doing this today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to do this with you. I'm really delighted. Um, One of the things I'd like to start with, uh, because it's sort of the way that uh, your book starts, is uh, give everybody a little bit of your background about how you got interested in magic, where you grew up, uh, and those kind of things. Right. Well, as far as magic goes, so I was a, a, uh, basically I had all the qualifications, childhood qualifications to achieve excellence in magic. I was a fat four-eyed kid with a speech impediment. And uh, so my parents uh, were always trying to, as they said in those days, you know, introduce me to new things to bring me out of myself. That was the phrase. Uh, And that included all kinds of things. I started music when I was very young. I was actually got paid to play music before I ever long before I ever got paid to do magic. Um, and my dad saw somebody do uh, a color vision box and he went to Lou Tannins and bought the trick. And as I have recounted in my first book and personally, one of my favorite pieces, a piece called Real Secrets, he, uh, he took my mom and I out to dinner and he performed the trick for me. And then he did not tip it. And then when we went home later that night, far from the prying eyes of other witnesses, in this case, my mother, he tipped the trick to me. So my dad was not a magician, but for the next two or three years, that's how I learned magic. He would go and buy a new trick from Lou. He would learn it. He would perform it for me <clears throat> and then teach it to me. And I would work on it for a while. And the genius of this, whether he, whether it was intentional or not at the moment, but the genius of this was that when you're first learning magic, the thing that kills you is you, you find out the secret. You go, Ooh, that's it? How am I going to fool somebody with that? And my father, each time, was giving me this touchstone. And he would say to me, wait, remember how the magic fooled you? Remember how the magic felt? And so that's how it started. And then I was very fortunate to be in New York City and to be learning. My first sleight of hand teacher was Louis Tannen himself, who taught me the sponge balls and dice stacking and the chop cup. And uh, 
even though I appreciated it on some level at the time, <clears throat> it's only today when I look back, the older I get, the more, the more amazed and filled with gratitude I, I find myself when I'm writing of the opportunities I had, the people I was around. The, the, you know, I, on a Thursday night, uh, in my teens at the shop, we used to be open thir- late Thursday nights, which was like a hang time, like Saturdays. And I asked, I worked up my nerve to ask Goshman for the work on a, on a particular vanish on that adapted thimble vanish. And grumpy as he was here, but he stood and I, and you know, he did it. And I went, uh, could you do it again? (laughs) And he did it again, but I was standing there right in front of him. And I, yeah, I got to watch him do it like six times. So I was enormously fortunate. So that's how magic started. And that early interest in magic led me to an early interest in Houdini. I was reading books about Houdini and I was fascinated. I liked, I love science and I was fascinated not by the escapes, which weren't magic. So they really didn't grab me in those days. It was the psychic busting that grabbed me, the idea of truth and deception. You know, I was very early on a deceiver, fascinated, obsessed with the idea of truth. And that's what grabbed me. And when I was, I don't know, I guess you're about 11 when your friends start to read Sherlock Holmes. And I said, what are you reading that crap for? Do you know the guy who wrote that was an idiot? (laughs) Because I knew about the Cottingly fairies. So I never read it. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, in the book, in, Co- in Conjurer's Conundrum, I tell the story of <clears throat> being about 11 and going to the World's Fair. And at the IBM exhibit, which was very futuristic, it was all about the future, uh, there was a machine that you signed a punch card, if any, for those who remember what a punch card was, the way we used to talk to computers. <clears throat> and then it would process... Uh, your signature essential, uh, ostensibly, and for a dollar, which was a lot of money, it was two weeks of my allowance, um, it then issued you a stack of cards, about eight, ten cards or whatever. Each one had a personality facet uh, printed on it. And I was very taken with this, but the more I thought about it, the less I understood it. Because I wasn't a computer junkie by any means, but I knew that those holes in the cards were how you talk to the computer. So if you had to talk to the computer like that, how could the computer read the signature? And it was even more confusing because in another part of the exhibit, there was the first OCR uh, demonstration, uh, optical character recognition, where you could handwrite a date and then it would immediately pull up the front page of New York Times, I think. From that day, typically people would do birthdays. So it was even more confusing. And coincidentally, a few weeks later, my whatever it was, fifth grade class or whatever, we went to a visit to a big computer facility. Now, this was in the days when computers were gigantic. It filled rooms. It was freezing cold. Everything was white. And the woman who's guiding us through it 
you know, is showing us, talking about the computers. And then we walk into this area and I see a machine and I, and I go, man, that looks like the machine. That looks like the signature handwriting analysis. And I didn't yet know, by the way, that handwriting analysis itself was nonsense, was a pseudoscience. I didn't learn that for a few years later. And as I noticed the similarity of the machine, she said, now, this is not a computer class. This is a uh, card sorting machine. And I went, I think I've been scammed out of my two weeks license uh, 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 allowance money. So now we go back to the World's Fair sometime later, a couple of months later. And you had to wait hours to get into some of these exhibits. And I said to my mom and dad, we have to go back to the IBM exhibit. And they went, well, we've already seen that. It's like two hours to wait and we should see new stuff. No, I, we have to go back to that. <laughs> and they indulged me and we went back because I thought it was the same machine, but I couldn't be 100% sure. I had a clear picture in my mind of the machine from the computer facility. And I went back for the sole purpose of looking at that machine and going, yep, that's it. I was scammed. But I also felt like I I busted this scam. I busted this thing because I was filled with all this kind of moral outrage, right, that I'd been hustled. Sure. And um, it was a very Houdini kind of inspired thing. And it wasn't until decades later, many, many years later, my, after my years of experience in the, in, the man, in the skeptic world, when I look back on that and I realized, you know what? I should have realized right then that was that was the work of a skeptic. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's exactly what it was. Right. And, well, and, was... A, and a very young skeptic. I mean, yeah. of course, it, uh, you know, the the uh, impetus to discover the truth came painfully. You know, hey, sons yep. of bitches took my money. That's right. And uh, there's nothing that inspires you more than getting conned out of your hard earned, uh, you know, 50 cent allowance. Yep. Um you mentioned in the book that you had, before you took up uh, magic as a profession, conjuring as a profession, that you had two uh, real jobs in the business world. Right. I think I know one of them, but what, what were those two? Oh, yeah. And I don't say what they are, right, in the book. No, I don't believe you, you, you just do. picked up on a side yeah. reference. Um, so first I was in the pet and aquarium business. Okay, that was I, was, I, remember. I was yeah. fascinated by wildlife. And I really, I thought about being a vet. I thought about being a zoologist. Um, but I didn't have the temperament for college because uh, I had skipped ahead some grades. And so when I entered college, I was 17. And I already had a full-time, almost a full-time job. And within a year or so, by the time of my 19th birthday, I had my own apartment and I had a girlfriend and I was working in this field in the pet shops and <clears throat> I was an expert on in some rare areas, some specialized areas, saltwater coral reef fish, mm. which was a new thing then and a difficult thing, still a difficult thing, but we've come further. And um, I hated walking into the gates of school. It was the only place that I was treated like a child. And I just didn't have the nature for for it. <clears throat> and I, I was always very self-motivated as far as reading and studying and whatever. So after my student deferment ran out, <laughs> which is 
which was basically my major. Yes. <laughs> my my major for my year and a half college, to, you know, career was staying out of Vietnam. Right. And uh, I actually came very close to going to Canada because um, the only thing I ever won in my life was when they held the first lottery, when they converted the draft to a lottery right. system. My number was 18. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Lucky me. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny. I was... I was making plans uh, to go to Canada and then uh, Nixon ended the end of the draft. Wow. So it was close. In fact, I even took the physical and applied for conscientious objector and they, um, they denied that. And I'd never been arrested for littering like my, like my hero Arlo Guthrie had. So uh, I was stuck. So anyway, um, so That's I was in that business. I ended up in that business for quite a while, running stores. And mm-hmm. I started at 20. My first public writing was writing for Pet Dealer Magazine, a national trade magazine, pretty big circulation in the industry. And I was writing mostly articles about animal specialized animal husbandry. I wrote the first extensive series about coral reef fish. It ran for a year. They put my name on the cover this month, Swiss, whatever. Um, I ran a series on reptiles, snakes, uh, which I was a keeper and breeder. Uh, I managed to get sued by a product that I reviewed badly for a million dollars. So I started, I started young. (laughs) And uh, uh, so anyway, I did that for almost a decade. And I I tried to get into the zoo world and I came within a hair's breadth of being the first curator of education at Staten Island Zoo, uh, which was at the very end of the period of time when you could still get hired in a zoo without extensive uh, educational credentials. Now you can't even be a keeper without really a master's. Wow. Uh, and I was rev- I was interviewed three times for this job. And looking back, I, I didn't, cu- I should have cut my hair. My hair was down my ass and I think that's probably what did it because they hired a guy from within. But once I didn't get that job, I just couldn't stay with the pet industry for the rest of my life because it's a kind of a predatory industry. Mm. And I was in it because I was fascinated by the wildlife, really. It was just an excuse for me to stay involved with that. And at the same time, I was also a wildlife activist. I was a wolf handler for a uh, wolf con- an early ground, uh, uh, grassroots wolf conservation group. Wow. It amazes me today that we are. I never would have thought in the 1970s we'd still be fighting the battles to protect wolves uh, and keep people from hunting wolves from helicopters 50 years later Yeah. Um, in the Western states. But anyway, so I did that for a while also. I was very much an activist. So I've always been an activist of some sort because yeah. in high school and my brief college career, I was uh, in, I was in politics. I was in both radical politics on the one hand, simultaneously almost. I was in radical politics. I closed my high school, helped close my high school twice. Uh, and then uh, with student strikes. <clears throat> but I also worked on a Senate campaign when I was quite young uh, in New York. I was like 18. And then um, the year I was in college was the year of Kent State. Wow. When over 200, I think, colleges closed nationwide in the ensuing week after the National Guard murdered uh, four students. And so I helped. I was part of the small contingent 
that took over Brooklyn College campus, that ejected the president from his office. Um, I slept on his conference table at night and smoked my first joint in that room. And uh, so I was always an activist. I was involved in politics. Then I was involved in conservation. I have a scar on my finger from a broken bottle when selling drinks on the very first Earth Day, 1970. But eventually I walked away from it all. And uh, I got a stupid job for a year and a half working at a friend's cigar shop just so I could kind of clear my head from this very hard work. And I've been working retail and was continuing to work retail really since my first job. From the time I was 17, I never had two days off because I worked retail. Yeah. Uh, and then I had some friends who were starting a phone company in the early days, what was called the interconnect industry, which by the way, was the same business that Tim Conover was in. Oh, wow. But, yeah. A lot of guys don't know that, but Tim and I had that in common. Tim was a salesman. Um, and in the early days when Ma Bell was broken, broken up and you could first sell, it could, it used to be that only Ma Bell could sell you a telephone. You couldn't walk into a retail store and buy a telephone. Yeah. When that changed, then a bunch of businesses cropped up called the interconnect industry. And I had some friends, some of whom had worked for Ma Bell, another was an engineer or whatever. And they threw together a company selling uh, telephone systems to small companies in Manhattan. And they took me on as a partner. I kind of as the kind of administrative front man, marketing guy, whatever. And I did that for about four years, three or four years. And I did reasonably well at it, but I was completely disinterested in it. Um, but after years of being a retail salesman, I, that was something I could do. Yeah. And so finally, and then I got friendly with Peter Samuelson. And Sam, I met Samuelson in like 76, I think it was, I saw him perform at the Tannins Jubilee and he did 10 minutes of close-up magic that absolutely rocked my world. Um, it seemed to me like this guy had the answers to questions I was about magic that I was having trouble formulating. I kind of had them, but I didn't exactly know what they were. And this guy had the answers. He was doing invasion of the body snatchers that he just did on, on fool us. Um, and, uh, just all this beautiful, imaginative, smart work of that was clearly contemporary in the sense a guy who there was nothing old fashioned about what he was doing. A guy who knew what day it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that blew my mind. And I had coffee with him in the, in the coffee shop, but he had a theater degree from Stanford and he didn't like hanging out with magicians. And I literally chased him for a year. (laughs) I went to every gig I could find him at, at the magic townhouse uh, and then I showed up at, um, I don't know how I even found out about this, but somehow I found out that he was working a gig at the opening of a bank or a supermarket or something, something like this in the parking lot, you know, just one of those hell gigs you do. <laughs> and I showed up, which probably did not please him at all because you don't really <laughs> want to be caught at those gigs. Exactly. Doing the real world work. Right. And I gave, exactly. And I gave him a handwritten dinner invitation. My, my first wife was a real, was a very good cook. And a friend of mine, I had an artist friend of mine write this elaborate invitation that you kind <laughs> of be a schmuck to say no to. Right. 
And I handed it to him. And finally, he agreed to come to dinner. And of course, we've been friends ever since. Um, we've been partners in Monday Night Magic for over 20 years. But what happened was he became a, a tremendous influence on me. Our styles are completely different, our personal styles, character styles. But underneath that, whenever he lectures and he's doing these fabulous workshops, right, as we speak, right, or Vanishing Ink, um, he always talks about these questions you, you have to ask yourself. Who, what, why, where, you know, who are you? Who's the audience? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why are they paying attention to it? Et cetera. Yeah. Well, he taught me that stuff way back when and had a tremendous influence on me. But also, he was just developing his stage act at the very, very beginning, front door of that. And I was hanging around him while I was in the phone business and sort of became a technical advisor oh. and then started to become a bit of a writer and then eventually became his director. And so and it was all on the side. This was all I would work all day at the phone office and then go to his loft and work on magic. And then finally, he got some good management and kind of moved up a, a level. And I left the phone company. <clears throat> My wife at the time said, who had a very good job in the medical world, said, you know, you're always, I was like 29. And she said, you know, you're always going to wonder if you don't give it a try and you're young enough. If it doesn't work out, you can still do something else. So why don't you take a year off? I'll support us and you explore magic. None of this is in the book, of course. This is an sure. interesting story that you're asking me about here that I never, I hardly ever talk about. I don't know if I've ever talked about it in an interview. I've talked about it with friends. And so that's what I did. I locked myself. She helped me make a beautiful practice room where for the first time in my life, everything was in my room, the one room, the library was in one place. There was a gigantic wall as well as the back mirrors. It was beautiful and it was separate from the rest of the house that we were renting. And um, I locked myself in the room for a year and practiced. And it was the same time I was getting tight with uh, Jeff Latta. I met Jeff oh. Latta. And, um, you know, it's interesting. These two early influences, I had other mentors. After Lieutenant, I had Earl Presto Johnson, who was a very important mentor to me and to many magicians of my generation in the Northeast. I wrote about Presto in my third book. But um, these two important mentors of mine were contemporaries. Johnny Thompson, as you well know, always talked about your mentor, Harry Reiser, as being his mentor, even right. though they were essentially the same age. Uh, the vanish off the top of the egg bag is Harry Reiser's that Harry came up with but never used. Um, and Latta and Samuelson were kind of like that for me. Samuelson's my age. Latta was just a couple years younger than me, two, three years younger or something. And it was <clears throat> Latta who really made me into a technician. I was not. I was very well read. And in that year, locking myself in the room, I wanted to get technically good, satisfied. Right. But to, I wanted to get to a satisfactory level. I knew what good was. I saw it every. I saw it every week. I saw Frank Garcia in the Magic Shop every week, and I wanted to kind of do that. And uh, that's what I set out to do. But it just so happened that the guy who ended up helping me out was one of the greatest sleight of hand technicians I've ever known in my life. You you knew Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I, and uh, so the guy who was influenced me technically, you know, turned me into a into a technician in that year. And then that year I went a little crazy. I kind of felt kind of cracked 
my life in some ways. And <clears throat> then I started bartending. I had to make a living. I'd heard of Magic Bar. I'd never seen it. I'd heard it. I liked bars. I performed socially in bars all the time. So I could perform for strangers. I never liked performing for friends. That's really why I became a pro, just so I could find audiences. Sure. And I started bartending. I went to bartending school. I started bartending. And then a few years later, Samuelson crossed paths with Bob Sheets at one of the Stevens con- contests. Oh, wow. And it, Yeah. Another thing we never talk about. And Sheets was moving the, the very successful in a Brook Farm in a Magic in Chevy Chase, Maryland, where it was a two-man show, Bob Bob and Steve show with Steve yeah. Spill, the the one of the two greatest comedy magic shows I ever saw in my life, matched only by Penn and Teller. Um, they were moving to a big location in Wheaton, Maryland, and they wanted um, a new full-time magic bartender, and and Peter mentioned my name, and I went to D.C. and auditioned, and. It, and eventually Bob offered me the job and my wife and I packed up our lives into two 24 foot trucks and drove to Maryland. Wow. And there, there it was. And that's when it really happened for me because my goal changing careers was never to be, I never thought anybody would know my name in the magic world. Never thought of being on the cover of Genie. Yeah. Uh, those, that was for heroes. You know, um, I just wanted to see if I could make a living at something I really cared about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to have had and I think it's really important to have had that synthesis of, you know, for me with Riser, it was understanding this aesthetic, I think, is the best word. And, and I refer to it most of the time as the Vernon aesthetic yep. that you have to have in your head before you can really do anything. I want whatever I do to look like this, to have this impression on people um and you know but harry wasn't a professional performer but um you know when i was a kid growing up there was a fellow he's still around a guy named dick stoner in oh i know that name very well yeah and uh dick's still going strong 91 wow yeah and um he was just funny i mean there wasn't a whole lot that he did that was unique he wasn't an inventor or creator of magic but man, could he entertain. And for me, for most of my life, I was always enamored of the guys who do the things I like to do and were funny at it. So I loved the funny piano players. I loved Borga and Pete Barbeauty, oh, and yeah. all these guys. And yeah. I loved funny magicians. So from right. Harry, I got this, you know, I was I, I knew a lot technically before I met Harry, but he refined what I knew in a way that uh, was really, you know, special to me. And at the same time, getting this entertainment aspect of it from Dick Stoner. So I think, you know, you really, because certainly the two guys who, you know, were your mentors were two of the best that have ever been. Right. And they were, they were, as I say, contemporaries, which was odd, Um, but they had big influences on me. Uh, At the same time, I'd grown up because of the Tannen situation I grew up watching Slidini and Goshman every year at the Jubilee, up close, real magic. I mean, that was real magic. Oh, yeah. And um, so that was profound and intimidating. Um, and also Dingle. And Dingle was the one, I couldn't imagine myself being Goshman or Slidini, even though I studied their work. I recorded Goshman's act 
transcribed it and studied it, not to ever do it for anyone, but to try and understand the misdirection. Yeah. And I studied Slidini's work. I had, didn't took, take lessons, but I had a close friend who took lessons. And every lesson, he'd then come to my house and repeat the lesson. It helped him lock it in, but it also gave it to me in great detail. Yeah. Um, so I studied all that stuff, and it all informed my work. But then watching Dingle, Dingle to me was really the guy, because Dingle, on the one hand, was this was one of the greatest technicians I ever, like literally at that time, he was really one of the three best sleight of hand men I ever saw in my life. And it's, it's un, unfortunate that it's hard to find that in the videos. You, you can find it, but you have to kind of assemble it from pieces yeah. that, that the Paris video is actually the best at Le Du Buffon. Um, but he really was, breathtaking like yeah. just, I mean it was amazing the hands he had but even though he was state of the art literally state of the heart of the art technician he was one of the best workers I ever saw he was funny charming he was a total worker the, when the book came out everybody went well this is magic for magicians blah 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 and I was like no you don't understand uh, and so he was a tremendous model. And when, that year I locked myself in the room. Like, I didn't think I could be that. But the book, the Dingle book, we read so much. I mean, you and I both are the same, right? We, we, we talk about these things, these lists of books, right? Every yeah. time somebody asks you to write one, they say, what's your three favorite books? Okay, here's 35. We'll start with that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> which literally I did. I wrote that for Conjurer's uh, community. Um but the day, but also everybody has a book that crystallizes right at the right moment in their lives. Yep. And for, you know, for some generations, that was for Houdini, that was the Robert Rodin book. Right. And later, you know, it was Hilliard, Greater Magic for tremendous generations. Right. And then, of course, Vernon Book of Magic, Stars of Magic, which is us. Yep. But the Dingle book, hit me right at the moment because that was the moment also I was turning pro because I was turning pro late. Yeah. And I did more material. I've done more material out of the Dingle book than any other book in my shop. I got 2000 books here. There's no book here that I've at one time or another done more tricks for than, than the Dingle book. Yeah. So all of those things entered, but then you're talking about Harry. I thought I was finished with mentors I thought I'd had my run with mentors. And then like six years after I'd been a pro, having turned pro at 29, I met Johnny Thompson properly. Yeah. And like you said about Riser, where you had all this technical underpinnings that you were reading and so forth, but Harry refined this aesthetic, as you say, exactly right. The Vernon aesthetic the close analysis, the vision of what you're doing, all of these things. And I considered myself a Vernon guy, even though I barely ever met him at that point. Um, I would fortunately get to meet him and know him late in his life enough to know him. So, but that came very late. I was a Vernon guy because of the, because I'd read the second chapter of the Vernon book of magic 120 times, Uh, you know, trying to score the marrow out of it. Right. And, um, 
you know, what does he mean when he says, use your head? Uh, I met Johnny and Johnny took all that Vernon stuff and just reshaped it for me. And re it was like being in the eye doctor and they're changing the lenses and you think you can see, but then he changes it. You go, Oh wow. Now I can really see. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what happened. And I would, I was already, don't forget, I'd done two years at magic bar. I knew what I was doing at that point. Okay. I'd gotten good because you either get good there or you die. Right. And you know, it's the street trade shows, magic bar. It's all the same. And, um, I had a version of Triumph that I had done uh, probably uh, at least 5,000 times. At least. Maybe more. And he, I, when John got through with me, I threw it out. I retired it <laughs> and started over again. <laughs> it's true. You know, there's a, there's a factor here that's interesting. Um because I had studied Stars of Magic and I had studied the Vernon book. I had all the Vernon books. I mean, I had the Book of Magic. I had the Inner Secrets. I had the Ultimate Card Secrets. Yep. But there's something that isn't in those descriptions. There's some stuff missing. And I don't think it's because Lewis Ganson is a poor writer of magic. I just think maybe he never either knew or completely understood you know, That's for right. example, for example, um, um, Travelers is the yeah. one that I remember most yep. keenly seeing Harry do and thinking that I knew this trick right. and then seeing him do it yeah. and thinking, what the fuck was that? Yeah, I, that, that isn't the trick I know. Yeah, that's wait, <coughs> what, you know, and you know, there was, and really, the the what it boiled down to was simply rhythm. That there's a rhythm to that trick that I didn't understand. That once the ball starts rolling on that trick, it's over. In, you know, pretty. Yeah, it might be my favorite Vernon trick. I mean, it's hard to pin that down, but it might be my favorite Vernon trick. It was certainly one of John's two, although John would always name Triumph first. Hmm. Um, and one of the first questions I ever asked John Thompson, because when we met properly, we met in Japan mm. and we toured Japan together for nine days. And we were on these, you know, seven hour rides on the bullet train, just talking magic nonstop. You know, it was, yeah. it was intense. And he taught me the egg bag that week, and loaned me one that I later refused to return to him. Um, and, uh, so one of the first questions I ever asked him, because I finally had the guy now that I could ask these questions that had been in my mind for decades. And one of the first questions I ever asked him was, okay, so in Travelers, why does he use the one-hand top palm and not topping the deck? Never made sense to me, right? I mean, you could do it that way, but why was that? And he said, Oh, because he didn't want to burn top in the deck. He didn't want to really let it out and become popular. I said, but Select Secrets preceded Stars of Magic. He said, yeah, but Stars of Magic was for the duffers, was for the punters. And Select Secrets had only seen a very small circulation. I have a first edition. of I have many editions of Select Secrets, but I have a first that has Vernon's Flatbush address on it. Wow. <clears throat> but Vernon got sick of answering the mail, the questions about Select Secrets. And so he sold the manuscript cheap so that he would stop getting the mail. So it did not see wide circulation. And he was very proud of the top of the deck 
um, there's that famous letter you might know uh, of uh, correspondence between him and Fawcett. And Fawcett says something like, I'm working on that Vernon palm you showed me. And Vernon writes back, he goes, no, 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 don't call that Vernon palm. I have something else in mind that's the Vernon palm. And what he meant was top in the deck. Ah. Um, but it became top in the deck because that was the, he, what he used as a chapter title. Right. right. And so um, anyway, so he switched it up for, for the uh, Stars of Magic. Yeah. Well, and knew, in I fact, of that. course, if you, if you actually use top in the deck, it's perfect in the construction of Travelers because you transfer the deck to the right hand as you and, and execute the topping the deck palm. And now you wait with the deck in your hand and the card already palmed as you reach into your left hand cleanly to produce that card. Right. Right, which is the first card now this time on the second shows because right. you show your hand empty. Now you simply transfer the deck and immediately go to get the card you already showed them. So yeah. it's not important that your hand be empty and you produce that card. It's yeah. like, oh it's, my God. The construction is exquisite. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and done with the proper rhythm and with proper technique. It's a stunning trick. It's just it's a, a stunning a trick, and it's also a stunning trick that can be done under any conditions. Yeah, I have used I have used travelers for years on stage for big audiences, um, <clears throat> and I've also done it the way John did it sometimes, which is in walk around with four free so, unsigned selections and no jacket, back pockets. I mean, there's yeah. no situation. You cannot put this miracle yeah. to use it. You know, it's it's one of my favorite tricks. I mean, yeah. you know me, I'm a I'm a well, you, kind of guy. <laughs> I think I told you, or no, I put in the review at the time. Oh, uh, stupid you, travelers. Yeah. And you had the you timed it on the oh, page, page turn, so yeah. that you read the setup at the I even remember it's at the bottom of the right page, is this right hand page is the setup. And then you turn the page and the image is on the top left and made me laugh out loud. Oh, very fun. Very fun. Let's, uh, well, those we were to... fun years, by the way, when we were both reviewing. I, I, <clears> I haven't were... thought about that in a while. They were but... really fun. And I should let people know that um, even though, you know, Jamie and I were very interested, especially when an important book, you know, would come around to see what the what the other one wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we were always very interested to see how because yep. with reviewing and and uh, I'm not telling Jamie anything he doesn't know, but one big problem with reviewing something is figuring out how am I going to attack this thing? What's That's my right. way in to the explaining of this whole situation? And so that's one of the things I really enjoyed uh doing and we had a moment that uh, I mentioned uh, at Magic Live, one of the one of the first two Magic Lives talking about reviewing and that at this at this period of time uh when this thing occurred um max maven was helping out by editing genie and you had had read something about the as if by an occult hand club <laughs> and which started way back with the uh you know the guys who were in journalism the great authors right. i'm thinking it's hl mencken but it, it's probably somebody else i don't remember now but anyway, the point was 
to see if you could get this trite phrase as if by an occult hand past your editor. Somehow you could include it in what you wrote and they wouldn't cross it out and say, what are you talking about here? Right. So we, so you and I decided that we would try it the same month yep. to see yep. if we could do it. And I don't remember, but Jamie disguised it somewhere cleverly in the body of his thing. And I used it as the title of my column. That's um, right. Yes, you. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Because I really had to slip it by my editor, and you could hang it on, light it up in neon. Your editor wouldn't have noticed it, which is hilarious. I totally forgot about that. Uh, that is really that is fantastic. And now, because my entire eighteen years of genie reviews, you know, are up as a free, oh, that's right, archive at Vanishing Inc. You go to Vanishing Inc. and on the, scroll down on the, into the footer, and it says Magic Book Reviews. It's 450 reviews. It's half a million words. Uh, and you can search on anything. Yeah. And I'm going to go search and see and where I put out that where in. Figure out where to put that in. Um, oh, it was really funny. That's hilarious. And then, we, and then we, yeah, that's so great. And then we also, we went back and forth with um, Santayana said, those who do not know their history, are doomed to repeat it. And for a while, <laughs> you and I kept putting that phrase <laughs> month after month in both our reviews. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, that was great. It's, it's was such great. an in- incredibly thankless position to be in, to, to be, uh, you know, reviewing That's true, but we both, took it, well, we, we both took it seriously, though. Oh, and, absolutely uh, seriously. And we were in a good era of, you know... Um, there was a real uh, period of a dearth of magic books, really, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, which now we seem to be coming out of. There's really a tremendous amount of magic books being put out. Right. Um, and, and, and a lot of it of quality now. But for a while there, it really got thin. But when we were in the heyday of what we were doing, because I started reviewing in 94, I think. Yeah. And I started in 95. Uh, there were a hell of a lot of good books. I mean, we Absolutely. got to review the books of wonder for Christ's sake. So, yep, you know, right. um, there was interesting stuff to write about and it was good enough, as you say, that we might've both loved the book, but attacked it in completely different ways, exactly. told the story, told the story in different ways. And also we weren't afraid to do negative reviews, right. uh, which was pretty unprecedented. I mean, we grew up reading Ed Michelle. Right, exactly. Zini, which was everything that Tannins put out was great, right? And so um, it was somewhat unprecedented, and also in my case, especially I think, uh, uh, influencing others and other publications. Really, to this day, quite frankly, you know, the first two reviews I wrote, first one was twenty five hundred words positive review, second was twenty five hundred words negative review. And in the days when we were running a letters column, the letters ran every month. You know, how could you write that much about a book you like? How could you write that much about a book you didn't like? Because my model, I was writing essays and I was writing what I regarded as literary criticism. Right. In the style of the New York Times Book Review or the New Yorker magazine. And magicians just didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, um, my uh, my goals were not quite that lofty, lofty, I should say, simply because, uh, you know, my basic experience as a writer comes from technical writing, really. I've never really tried to do anything else. And so 
all I ever tried for was to hope that it would be fun to read and it would tell Exactly, I was about to say, but you had a distinctive voice as a writer. That's what it comes down to. Yes, you had a distinctive yes. voice. And while your approach was a little more pragmatic, um, you had a distinctive voice. So it was highly readable. You had the brief period with Mac and then Mac like jumped out of the pot and went, it's too hot in here for me. Well, you uh, know, we, we also had the unfortunate... Um, occurrence that the first book we had to review was that one of carol fox's that was not good at all oh that's right and so uh it really put our credibility to the test and he and i talked about that a long time um how are we going to handle this and i said i think we have to be as gentle as we can be but if we roll over on this book I don't think anything else we say ever afterwards is going to be taken seriously. And it cost me my friendship with uh, Carol, unfortunately. That's that's a shame. Uh, it is too bad. And I'll tell you one more quick story about this, because I want to talk about your new book uh, in the uh, uh, we have what, about 45 seconds left. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. But. Uh, the the main con, con, uh, criticism I had of, of Carol's book was it was not a book of creation. It was a book of recollection. Right. And the problem with it being a book of recollection is he failed to recollect whose tricks those actually were. Yeah, I remember I mean, it well. And then he um, he sent me quite an angry letter saying, well, what tricks aren't mine? And I sent him a, an email, I guess, not a letter. And I sent it back. Um, and... Uh, Oh, shoot. What was I going to say about this now? Oh, son of a gun. I got right to my point and it decided. Because we were talking about with Mac. Right. Uh, Yeah. But, you know, it was it was a hard thing. And then, of course, Mac hated doing negative reviews. He just always felt that that was hard. And it was really um, an impossible thing to do the way we wanted to do it. We wanted to make it feel conversational. But right. this is very early days of the Internet, 1995, yeah. Yeah. and trying to you know hook up some way where he can type something and I can type something back in response to get this back and forth. And then somebody had to take all that information and turn it into actual readable Word documents so yeah. it, you know, it could be edited. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was unfortunate. Uh, it was really an unfortunate thing. The, the Fox book, uh, I do recall all that now, and the Fox book – came i had already been reviewing for a while and i had already established myself as sort of this enfant terrible um i forget if the amar cups of balls review had come out yet but um probably not no because that was that was when that was when um richard took over genie right it was one of the first things he ran against my advice um and uh but i had already established I had already exactly. taken on. I had already taken on some big targets right off the bat. Yeah, uh, my second review was Strong Magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so I remember when Carol's book and Carol also, who I only met really late in the game. He came to one of my first re- uh, lectures in uh, 1987. Uh, 1987 or 1988, 1988 came to one of my first lectures and uh, um, make a long story short. It's actually a wonderful story, but he, I had just gone on my first miniature letter lecture tour, just a handful of lectures. And I just worked the magic castle for the very first time and lectured there 
with great success, much, much far beyond my wildest dreams, Vernon had come and complimented me. And Goshman came and complimented me. I really couldn't believe how well I'd done. And I had a strange lecture where I was yelling at him and carrying on and all this stuff and doing a lot of theory and talking about Eugene constantly. And then in the same trip, I went to Cucamonga, which is about, and I, and I didn't know what the hell is a Cucamonga, but it's an hour from LA. I figured, well, I did great at the castle. This will be fine. And I walked into that lecture and within 20 minutes, they, they hated me. They, they had, you know, they were ready to light torches and chase me up the mountain. And, um, but Carol was in the room. And of course I knew who he was, but I had never met him. And Carol came up to me during the intermission, at which point, by which point I had said to myself, this was never going to work. And this is the last lecture. This is the last lecture I'm ever going on. Forget this. I'm not cut out for this. And he walked up to me and the first words out of his mouth were, how come I never heard of you? And he was not only highly complimentary, but then in the second half, I said, well, they hate me. And he said, you're too good for him. Screw him. <laughs> and in the second half, he sat down. He had been sitting in the back of the room with, um, What's his name? The big guy who did the 180 flip. Oh, Mike Caldwell. Mike Caldwell. They were sitting in the back together. I started the second half. Carol sat up front in the side to my side at my merchandise table, sat there for the whole second half, applauding, laughing, smiling at me every time I looked at him. And then he was president, uh, international president of the IBM that year. And in his last column, the one he had left to do, he devoted half the column to me. And made my lecture career. So I had that. And then I get that book. Yeah. Right. And I wrestled over it. And I said, you know what? And, and, and your editor publisher walked up to me at a magic convention at, I guess, at an early magic life and said, so what are you going to do with the new Carol Fox book? I said, I'm going to roll over on it. What the hell are you going to do? <laughs> and yeah. because I just made the choice, I made sure. the choice and, and you could go through my 450 books and it's probably, I think it's the only example of that, that I can give you. I think yeah. there might be, there might be another, but yeah. And you know, had the situation been reversed, for example, and had Mac and I had had the opportunity to establish credibility with other things, I think we would have both right. better, um, you know, with that path. So let's talk about the, I, I say new book, although it was published last year and I don't know how it's. Well, it's copyrighted radar. last year, but it did. It's copyrighted. I wrote it last year, but it actually didn't get released until just a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. So I, I didn't, I didn't not pay attention uh, to all yeah. this. Um, yeah. It was brand new. I think when I sent you the, when you asked me about a um, copy, I think uh, it had been out a week. Oh, wow. Great. Well, what people need to know is it's not a magic <clears throat> book. It's uh, about Jamie's life uh, in the skeptic community. And I believe, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I think the underlying question in this book is <clears throat> we have a group of people who deceive theatrically. Our job is to basically, as you say, you know, be an honest liar. And right. people know we're not going to be telling the truth. Uh, and we protect our secrets. Those of us who, uh, you know, have seen the value of protecting secrets, we protect them quite tightly. And by at, at the same time, 
and I have done none of this, but I'm certainly a member of uh, the skeptic community in terms of that's how I, you know, that's my worldview and that's how I feel is the best way to uh, pass through life. Uh, on the same token, we're, we're going to tell the people who are getting conned by these, uh, you know, the, the psychics and the uh, people who can talk to the dead and what have you, we're going to give everybody, we're going to give their secrets away left and right but for a what I think is a noble reason. So did I did I sort of figure out the conundrum there? Is that is yeah? That, that is. I right? think that I think that's what that is. I think that's exactly what that is. That we're trying to figure out. Um, it's one thing to say, you know, uh, I'm an honest liar. That's not a new idea. That's an idea that was. Uh, it certainly vastly predates Germain. But the wonderful quote from Germain, which uh, I've used as my email signature for decades you know the conjurer is most honest of professionals he first promises to deceive you and then does um that social contract is something that we are aware of in the magic world and we talk about and we write about and that when you use the word magician you're stating a social contract with the audience and you're saying i'm going to fool you but it's okay because i'm going to use it to give you an experience a unique experience and I'm going to bring you back whence you began in a not significantly altered or damaged state. Right, right. And that's yeah, there's, the rub. Uh, the, uh, there were a couple of chapters that I thought were tremendously powerful. One was your discussion with uh, a mentalist about his um, sliding down the slippery slope of, of not straight out admitting that what, what he does isn't the real thing. Right. The idea of making up your own mind. And then the last uh, little bit about the woman uh, and the faith healing yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. I think, uh, you know, the point that you make is um, so very strong and profound, which is that skepticism, you know, skepticism gets lumped into atheism. And it's fine by me. I mean, I saw in one of your talks, you know, you made the very interesting comment that uh, atheism is too narrow a category for what you're interested in. Uh, right. that uh, you're skeptical of all things that put forth extraordinary claims and uh, simply asking that question of, well, okay, prove it. Yeah, um, and the skeptic movement, that's what the skeptic movement or the scientific skepticism movement is about. It's about testable claims. It's about how we define truth in a, in a testable realm. Um, it's not saying, as the introduction to the book demonstrates, it's not saying that every single aspect of human behavior is necessarily testable. Um, but many are. And once they are, now you're talking about the realm of testable truths and of the scientific method yeah. uh, and of what we regard as evidence, right? Um, skeptics often make the mistake of thinking that people who believe in the paranormal or other pseudoscientific claims uh, lack evidence. They don't have evidence. That's not true. Everybody thinks they have evidence. The problem is very often that evidence is bad evidence. Yes. It's, it's how we define and, uh, and consider evidence of value. And, and in the book I discuss, because the first half of the book is the history of the intersection between magic and skepticism. The second right. half of the book is my personal history. So in that first half, I discuss Harry Houdini and I discuss and spiritualism. And before that, I discuss Reginald Scott's 
Discovery of Witchcraft, 1584, right. which I consider a skeptical work. It's a classic text of the Elizabethan era, but um, it's a book that was intended to debunk the witch burnings of James in England. But it's not that he, it's 1584. He doesn't go out and out state there's no, he doesn't rule out the possibility of witches. He's just looking at the evidence and saying, I don't think his evidence is good. That's why he's got a chapter on magic. Smart yeah. people could be fooled this way. If smart people could be fooled this way, they could be fooled by this shoddy evidence. Right. Um, and that's why I consider it a skeptical work because he's focused on the evidence. And just like the scientific method, we keep changing our conclusions. Um, that's that's a feature of science, not a bug. It's a feature. Right. Re- religion has one established set of beliefs, and then they never change. They never re-examine. And people are trying to follow rules that were written by superstitious Iron Age men telling stories around the campfire 2,000 years ago. What, what the hell do we care about that? Yeah. Um, so science is provisional. So it's, it's always updating itself. And and the skepticism is not, and science is not about telling people what to believe. It's telling people how to think, helping people how to think, with the understanding that conclusions are going to keep changing all the time. Yep. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, for a long time, all that we were able to figure out scientifically is what we could figure out with our five senses. The technology had not progressed to a point where these tools were available for people who were doing the research. And as those tools get more refined and allow us to see smaller and smaller and farther and farther and all these uh, things, then science changes its mind. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's that whole thing about, um, you know, you know, somebody, you know, asks about my atheism. You say, if I gave you irrefutable proof, that a God exists, absolutely an extraordinary proof to that extraordinary change. Would you change your mind? And I say in a heartbeat, just give me that proof. And yet if you say to a a religious person, what evidence would change your mind? There is none. Right. And so there's, there's the, the big thing there. And I think, you know, the point will fade to black here in a couple of seconds, although I think you and I could have talked for several more hours, but I, I think the point that's so important, and, and you made this in the in the introduction, about we have just lived through four years, yeah, where the uh, where lies have been poured out onto the public in such a nonstop, overwhelming stream that even for those of us who do look at life in a scientific way. You get overwhelmed by it. And the people who don't have never been taught how to examine evidence in a scientific right. way are are completely bamboozled by it. Yep. So, you know, this idea of weaponizing lies, which is really what this what we've That's gone right. through, absolutely weaponizing deceit. Um, it, it leaves the country uh, in a in a, in any country, but the United States in particular, in a in a weakened state a state yeah, where I've, I've long said that in, in in an age of information which is how history will dub this period that you and i have grown in uh in an age of information what is necessary is skills of selection yeah. and so the problem is 
people determining what is good evidence, what is not good evidence, and also determining sources. A lot of it's just about what's your source of information. Right. And people live in bubbles selecting horrible sources. Right. You know? Right. Um, um, do you find this situation any hope at all in this situation? <laughs> I, because to be honest with you, I don't. I mean, uh, you know, there have been so many times on Facebook where I've either bl- had to block or unfriend Right. Simply because I was butting my head against willful ignorance. Yeah. And so, you know, there was uh, some discussion on something. I don't remember what it was, but the fellow who posted the idiot stuff, I found links to like 10 articles on the Internet explaining this information for children. It was designed so children would understand this. I think it may have been something about gender fluidity or something like that. How to understand what that's going on. And so I say, here, read this, this, you know, read these things. And the fellow's response was, it's okay. I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. I thought, okay, so there it is. But, uh, yeah. Um, skeptic, you know, I'm caught in, um, a constantly conflicted mixed ground when it comes to this, because as a skeptical activist, which ultimately is about education, educating the public and also serving as a, the part of skepticism that has to do with debunking. Randy always denied the label of debunker because it was just a piece, a part of skepticism is consumer advocacy, right? I I always said as a skeptic, I'm a consumer advocate for the scientific method. And so there's a consumer protection side, you know. Right. Uh, Simon, when Simon Singh, when my friend Simon Singh, the British science writer, was sued by the British Society of um, of uh, subluxation, uh, 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 chiropractic, mm. uh, which would have put a dangerous cap on free speech about science um the skeptic movement were the first people who came to his support Ah. eventually that spread to the scientific and medical community who realized that if he lost his suit it would affect all of them right and eventually the british chiropractic society had to make a public was forced legally to make a public statement and said chiropractic doesn't work that's actually literally what happened and not only that it also took a major first step in um, rehabilitating the notorious UK libel laws Uh um, as a result. So there is a consumer protection aspect of skepticism. And as part of that, I have always preached, I I have a whole talk on this that I gave at one of the Randy conferences called Credit the Con Man. And I have always preached that if you blame the victim of a psychic scam, for example, or the Madoff scam or anything like that, if you blame the victim, you're never going to change it. You're never going to protect anyone because you have, you're denying, you're, you're, la- you're not understanding how it works. You're not yeah. understanding what the skills of the predator are. And those skills are 
polished and professional. And people say, well, how can, you know, if you give a million dollars, you give your life savings to a psychic, you're an idiot. So your own fault. Well, unfortunately, that's what police agencies often believe. Yeah. And so my friend Bob Nygaard is always battling by bringing psychics to criminal prosecution in recent years, um, is to educate police about what's really going on. Yeah. And so I've always preached that. I've always preached trying to understand what's going on in the victim's mind. Yeah. But the way I've resolved this when it comes to the last few years of what's going on in this country and the fact that, you know, there's a major article, I think, in the Times yesterday or the day before that basically experts have now reached the conclusion we will not achieve herd immunity. We will have to mitigate and live with the virus indefinitely because of people resisting the vaccine. Yes. That is a perfect example of bad thinking leads to bad choices, leads to bad results. That's what skepticism is about. Better thinking leads to better choices, leads to better results. How do you solve the problems of the world? You don't solve them with with wishing or good thoughts and prayers. You solve them with action based on the scientific method. Right. That's really what skepticism is about. It's about a kind of optimism that this is the way you're going to solve problems. Right. This is the way you're gonna this is the way you're gonna mitigate battle global warming, whatever the case may be. And so I try to preach, try to understand what's going on in the victim's mind. What is you know, yeah, what are they thinking and why are they thinking it? But by the same token, you have to recognize that people are responsible for their actions. And if their actions are leading to negative outcomes, you know, the anti-vax movement, which precedes COVID and unfortunately set the stage in the worst possible way for COVID, the anti-vax movement made the world a more dangerous place for my children. Right. Literally. Exactly. The anti-vax movement has a death count on its epitaph of dead children that didn't have to be. Right. And let things like measles and mumps come back. Yeah. It didn't have to be. So you have to hold people responsible for that. And you have to recognize in the examples you cite that once some someone has married themselves onto conspiracy theories and a and a way of thinking that's not <clears throat> rational, that's not critical thinking, um, then you may have to just, you know put them in jail or whatever you have to do to protect yourself from them. Um, and you may not be able to change their minds. Yeah. Uh, and the best thing you can do <clears throat> is try and educate the next generation and teach them about science at an early age and teach exactly. rational inquiry and critical thinking and skepticism and a scientific worldview at an early age. Right. There's no way to teach the old dog new tricks. We have to, That's deal, right. with the, That's we have right. to deal with the pups. Yep. Nope. Jamie Ian Swiss, this has been delightful. Really delightful. Always a pleasure, my friend. On mic or off, doesn't really matter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this uh, I learned a lot, and it's really great. Uh, the book, again, is called The uh, Conjurer's Conundrum. I've got a review of it in the um, newsletter this month and also uh-oh. ordering information. Yeah, I said that you're no Carol Fox. <laughs> that's how, I, that's how ah. I started the whole thing. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I st- Ouch. Anyway. Be safe. Uh, the book is available from my store, my website, jamieandswiss.com. Yep, they'll have that link will be there as well. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Be Thanks, safe, Mike. my friend. Always Light, a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Take All care, right. man.
Bye. Bye now. This has been another Conversation with Close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends. You can like us on Facebook at Michael Close Magic, follow us on Twitter at Mike Close Magic, and visit our website, which is michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash Michael Close. In that way, we can continue to bring you high-quality content. Until next time, so long from the Great White North.